I'm Chris Flannery. For those of you who uh, weren't able to get in last night and uh, don't know, and, and also for those of you who were here last night, still, Chris Flannery. And this is the American Mind, part one section. You'll see in your syllabus, we have uh, at 1050, American Mind, part two. <clears throat> I want to read from the focus questions for this session just so that we can be reminded of what it is we're talking about and to keep Lucas and me on track. Here are some of the key questions for uh, this morning's session. What does the Declaration tell us about the American mind as it related to the foundations, forms, and purposes of the newly sovereign United States? What is the political logic of the argument of the Declaration what is the philosophical and historical heritage on which the Declaration draws? And those are really the key um, focus questions for, for this discussion this morning. Those questions certainly will spill over to the uh, second session as well. You'll notice that all of our conversation in this session and the next session really revolve around the Declaration of Independence. They revolve around what Lincoln called the philosophical cause of America that we talked about yesterday and all the other documents that we're reading, including the one we're really going to focus on this morning, John Locke, all of these documents are being read so that we can better understand this um, most influential, <clears throat> most distinctively American document, which was uh, chosen and, and even edited across the road over there in uh, Independence Hall. So... We're not going to leave the Declaration, even though we are going to look at Locke at great length and we're going to look at these other documents. It's a matter of going to those documents to make us better readers of, uh, of the Declaration of Independence. And I want to start with uh, this little Ashbrook booklet that we have that has some documents in it that help us become better readers of the Declaration. The phrase, the American mind, <coughs> is given to America by this little letter from Jefferson to Henry Lee in your booklet on page 51. Lee had been writing Jefferson, and notice when this is, 1825. Jefferson's a famous elder statesman. It's um, 49 years or so after the Declaration. The Declaration is now famous. America actually exists uh, and uh, still is operating under the Constitution that the American Revolution and founding gave to us. And Lee is writing Jefferson and reminding him that, well, some people like John Adams, for example, are saying things like, you know, there's not an idea in the Declaration of Independence that wasn't hackneyed for a generation before 1776. And Jefferson's writing back and says, uh, yeah, that's right. And one of you uh, yesterday uh, mentioned how important the years 1763 to 1776 uh, were. Who, who was that? No, the gentleman. What's your name? I can't see you. Ray. Ray, yeah. That's a good thing to remember. You remember the Stamp Act. You reminded us of the Stamp Act. Americans had been having a remarkable public conversation, uh, not just since 1763, but with great intensity and increasing intensity from 1763 up to 1776. And by the time you get to July 4th, 1776, you really do have an American mind, the kind of thing that Jefferson is describing in his letter to Henry Lee. That is, America's 
objections to what we call in the Declaration the tyranny that we're suffering under, uh, and America's arguments for its own rights in this matter had developed. And you could do, certainly, a lengthy whole week on just the development of the American mind between 1763 and 1776. Um, I think Lucas, in in the next session, may refer to Uh, some of those documents, notably, as he did last night, Jefferson's uh, summary view of the rights of British America. So Jefferson writes back to uh, Richard Henry Lee, and he says, yeah, these these ideas in the Declaration of Independence, they were not meant to be new principles, never before heard of. He says, uh, there was only one opinion on this side of the water uh, back in 1776. He's looking back 49 years ago. All American Whigs thought alike on these subjects. He says, this was the object of the Declaration, not to find out new principles or new arguments, but to place before the public, before mankind, the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent and justify ourselves in the independent stand we are compelled to take. We didn't aim at originality of principle or sentiment, blah, blah. It was the expression of the American mind. And he says, all its authority rests on the harmonizing sentiments of the day, whether expressed in conversation, in letters, printed essays, or in the elementary books of public right, such as Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Sidney, etc. All its authority rests on the harmonizing sentiments of the day. And think of that for a moment. This Declaration of Independence, which proclaimed these principles, could have had no authority, even from its own point of view, if the American people were not prepared to consent to the Declaration. And by the argument of the Declaration itself, it's the consent of the governed that authorize or give authority to government. And the American Revolution could not have proceeded if the American people were not prepared to consent to a republic, to consent to um, the government based on the consent of the governed that was going to be affected by the revolution if we happened to win the revolution. And notice as well in light of our conversation yesterday that he mentions again famously here that the the American mind, the common sense of the subject, the harmonizing sentiments of the day were informed by a variety of of sources. Going all the way back, he mentions Aristotle, so great Greek philosopher, Cicero, Roman statesman, philosopher, Sidney, a modern thinker who's really, uh, uh, whose thought bridged ancient and modern uh, uh, um, notions in a way that Locke was thought maybe not to do, Locke being maybe more modern, more radical on the surface in any case than Sidney, and the famous uh, Locke. Link, uh, Lucas mentioned the other day, of course, that uh, the Bible or the Christian traditions were certainly very influential in um, American thinking at this, at this time. You wouldn't expect Jefferson to, to mention that. He was not uh, most famous for his piety. Um, maybe some of you know that there's this thing called the Jefferson Bible. Oh, yes, I have copies. Got copy. Uh, in which he just cuts out all the miracles and stuff and, and uh, leaves what he thought was the good ethical, ethical teaching there. Um, but so there's a variety of strands uh, from 2,000 years of uh, Western experience, Western reflection, that these Americans understand uh, inform 
the common sense of things here in America, inform the harmonizing sentiments here in America, and shape the American mind. If you could, there are good collections of sermons from the time if you wanted to look at that aspect of things, and you'd find, first of all, the sermons got very political, I and mean, these were revolutionary years, and, and you would find uh, preachers of a variety of denominations um, talking as if uh, they were John Locke uh, in, in the pulpit. There, were, there was a widespread um, uh, common sense of the subject that would appeal to Scripture on the one hand and Locke on the other and Aristotle on another and Montesquieu and, uh, and um, political history as well, both modern and, and ancient. So uh, that letter from Jefferson is, uh, is in, in the little booklet here just to give us this gloss on the Declaration, show us where this, this phrase comes from. It's a really useful phrase, partly because if you get into the intellectual history uh, of uh, the American Revolution and founding, especially as it's written in the mid to late 20th century or early 21st century, you'll find a, uh, a, the run-of-the-mill um, uh, intellectual historian in America today will speak as if there's no such thing as an American mind. Well, that's certainly not the way uh, Lincoln would talk about it. Uh, it's not the way King would talk about it. Um, there is a very um, real and identifiable and understandable substance to and, and a distinctively uh, American uh, way of thinking about many matters, uh, namely political matters, which we're concerned with here. And if you start with the Declaration and work through some of these arguments that we're going to look at, you'll become familiar with it. Now, does that mean that people didn't disagree with one another? Well, no. What, what are we going to be looking at here, and what are you going to look at for the rest of the couple weeks here? We have a revolution going on here. It turns out there are a lot of loyalists there. Well, um, there was a big disagreement about matters. We're going to go, when you leave here in a few days, you go to Gettysburg. turns out we had a civil war. There was kind of a fundamental disagreement here. And there were certainly big clashes uh, in, in the 20th century having to do with the civil rights movement and so on. So Americans are perfectly capable of disagreeing with one another. Um, but I think you'll see that throughout that, that what prevails to this day and what continues to animate um, our political life is a set of broad agreements. You could say in the Civil War in particular, it might have gone the other way. One of the things you might read to, to reflect on this is a speech by the Vice President of the Confederate States of America named Alexander Stevens. It's called the Cornerstone Speech. You can get it, uh, the whole speech, I think, uh, or at least a big a selection from it on the Ashbrook. Oh, you already have it in your, oh, maybe you're going to do it in Gettysburg? I'm not stepping on the toes of Gettysburg here, am I? Uh, but so when you get to that cornerstone speech, for our purposes here, it's, it's very instructive as well, because here is, in 1861, here is the vice president of the Confederate States of America, and he's looking back uh, four score and five years ago, and he's saying, you know, Jefferson and those guys back in 1776, they got it wrong. All men are not created equal. And from his point of view, that's what, from the Confederate States' point of view, that's what this uh, Civil War was about. You've got these folks in the North who are advocating this notion that all men are created equal, and we're here to tell you it ain't so. So that was a big disagreement, and that argument lost. And one of the things you'll see in the 100 years after the Civil War is it takes a long time, even when you win a war, to establish in the minds of those who are defeated um, 
the implications of the principles that animated the victorious side in the war. So there are disagreements, but um, until we have another civil war and the other side loses, America remains animated by this philosophical cause that Lincoln looks to in 18, or excuse me, in 1863 and King in 1963. Glance for a moment at the, um, the other letter, just to make use of this nice booklet here from um, the Ashbrook Center. The Jefferson letter to Roger Whiteman in, uh, on June 24, 1826. And I want to look at this in light of this principle that Lucas got us to last night uh, and which you will come back to again and again in, um, in your conversations in the next two weeks, I think. And that is, you will find that, that Abraham Lincoln, for example, I think is the most profound student of the Declaration of Independence uh, in American history. And he's the most profound student of the relationship between the Declaration and the Constitution, the relationship between what he called the apple of gold and the pictures of silver. And Lincoln's statesmanship will go back again and again and again to this self-evident truth that all men are created equal and what all of the political implications of it are. And I think you'll see with the professors you have there, including Lucas, but also Alan Gelso, you'll see how, um, how much uh, profound thinking, how much complicated statesmanship um, was necessary to... Uh, um, apply this principle in the very complicated politics of America in the antebellum uh, period. But nonetheless, Lincoln's statesmanship always insistently uh, holds up this principle as the, uh, um, the rock on which uh, the American polity is, is built. And in this little letter to Roger Whiteman, Jefferson gives us a nice metaphor to... Uh, help us see what Lucas explained is this self-evident truth, to help us see what it means to say that all men are created equal. This letter, one of the charming things about this letter, this is the last extant letter that we have from Jefferson. So for all we know, this is the last letter Jefferson ever wrote. And he writes it, think again of Jefferson, this is now uh, 50 years after the Declaration of Independence, minus a few days. And Jefferson, who's again maybe the most famous living American statesman. He's the author of the Declaration of Independence. And Washington, D.C. is getting ready to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And so Roger Waitman is in charge of the ceremonies, and he's writing to Thomas Jefferson. You know, think of that, dear Mr. Jefferson, you know, bow, bow. Um, won't you please come to these, and remember, Monticello is not that far from Washington, D.C. Won't you please come uh, to to these celebrations uh, for the, of the 50th anniversary of that amazing document that you wrote. And Jefferson's writing him back to say, dear, dear Mr. Whiteman, I would love to be there. Unfortunately, I'll be dying on that day. <laughs> uh, and it turns out that, he, of course, he does. And Jefferson, Jefferson and John Adams both, you know, race, you know, hold on, hold on to the fourth and then go to what Adams would say perhaps was a better world. Um, Jefferson had doubts about that. So, in the last lines of this letter to Roger Waitman, Jefferson articulates in his typically felicitous way what it was that, there, that was said in that declaration that 
is most memorable. I think this is what, what, what it was that Lincoln would say is the philosophical cause of America. And he gives us a metaphor for understanding what equality means. And again, we all know it's self-evident, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't take many hours of very thoughtful reflection and conversation to think through what exactly this, this self-evident truth means. We're going to spend the rest of this morning uh, thinking it through, as self-evident as it may be. So Jefferson says, all eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man. The general spread of the light of science, there's that enlightenment sense getting in there, has already laid open to every view the palpable truth that the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. So there is a metaphor which uh, Jefferson borrows from a couple of earlier sources, um, Sydney among others. Um, what does it mean to say that all men are created equal? It means that the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few, booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. So the context of the Declaration of Independence, one simple way to understand that, that context is the Declaration was issued to a world in which the divine right of kings was still asserted in, a, in, a, in the prevailing politics uh, of Europe, in which hereditary aristocracy was the prevailing mode of government in the great powers of, of Europe. And this declaration was there to say, it ain't so. It's not true that some people are born with crowns on their head and other born with picks in their hands to do the work. It's not true that some people are by nature masters and other by nature slaves. And this is a, this is a way that Lincoln would uh, typically articulate this. What does it mean to say that all human beings are created equal? It means that none of us is born a slave. None of us is born a master by nature. It's quite possible, as we know, and we haven't treaded on this delicate subject, it's quite possible that any one of us might be enslaved under the particular laws or customs of a particular people. But by nature, we can never be rightfully enslaved. And this leads to... Uh, a reflection on some, a distinction that somebody um, made the other day, which we ought to take up, the distinction between de facto and de jure. Who was, who was talking about that? Who brought that up there? Yeah. It might be, this, this argument holds, it might be that de facto here in Virginia, in fact, here on Jefferson's plantation, that you might be um, held a slave. But the argument of the Declaration of Independence says you can never de jure, that is, under law. What law? Under the law of nature, you cannot rightfully be enslaved. It might be that these people are enslaving you, but the law of nature says you have a right to rise up and resist that enslavement. This is just like uh, Lucas's um, metaphor of the little boy in the bicycle. It may be that, uh, you know, you've bought your bike and, and Arnold is out riding that bike uh, in circles around you. De facto, Arnold has your bike. De jure, he is a thief. You've got the receipt. And similarly, with this uh, idea of uh, what it means that all human beings are created equal. No human being, 
may rightfully be enslaved by another, however much in the world it may be that human beings are enslaving one another, are tyrannizing over one another. Now, I think in your conversation as you go on, maybe it'll come up here. It d- depends, or if not, it'll certainly come up in, uh, in your subsequent conversations. Examining what we should think, therefore, about the situation in America, that we are declaring this principle that all human beings are created equal while we are still harboring uh, the institutions of slavery here. How are we to understand that? That creates, you know, 230 years of... Of, uh, of uh, complicated conversation in America. How are we to think of these founders who, on the one hand, are proclaiming that all men are created equal, and on the other hand, are holding slaves? Uh, that's an important conversation. And, uh, Don't you think the phrasing of this is kind of a bitter commentary on the Virginia and Southern gentry? Bitter. A bitter commentary. It's, at the time, folks across the Atlantic were quite reasonably saying... Look at those people over there holding up this, this document, waving this document in our face, saying all men are created equal. They're a bunch of slaveholders. And, and because of that, I want you to, to, you don't have to do this right now, but the reason that uh, on your, uh, in your readings there's this Jefferson draft of the Declaration of Independence. It's in your big Curland and Lerner book, which you're so happily lugging around the 100-degree <laughs> Philadelphia heat. I know you thank us every hour and every day for assigning that text. I, I do want to um, emphasize that that text happens to be available, all of it, wonderfully, also online. And it's a really great way to access the documents and select passages from them and apply them, you know, put them in your own files and, and use them. Uh, also, they don't weigh anything. Um, in Jefferson, um, uh, th- there was a, a committee formed to draft the Declaration of Independence and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and John Adams and a couple other folks that everybody forgets, but Livingston maybe, and I've forgotten the fourth one, fifth one, to draft the Declaration. Jefferson got the, uh, um, the call to do it himself. We have copies of Jefferson's draft. Franklin did a little editing on it. Adams did a little editing on it. Jefferson changed a couple little things himself, and they submit the draft back to Congress because, after all, it's the representatives of the people who are going to have to um, affirm this declaration. And Congress gets together, and they edit it. They, they pass it around, they look at it, and they start crossing things out and putting things in. And looking at some of the changes that took place there can be um, uh, an interesting exercise for, you, for yourself, but also for your students sometimes. One of the most important things that uh, took place in this editing was that Whereas Jefferson and Franklin and Adams and the other two members of the drafting committee all agreed to submit the declaration in this form, Congress struck out a passage that explicitly denounced the King of England for inflicting the slave trade, inflicting slavery on America. And one of the reasons, uh, well, Jefferson explains in his notes why it is, in his mind, and this is also in your Curl and Learner, why it is that Congress deleted that explicit denunciation of slavery in the Declaration. Does anybody, did anybody note what Jefferson said the reasons were? Why did Congress scratch those passages out of the Declaration? Share? something about it was a luxury we cannot afford. 
Well, it was a luxury, and he gives specific reasons, and he names names, so we're not quite names, but... South Carolina and Georgia. Remember those two states. You will hear more about South Carolina and Georgia. I'm not saying anything. Where are the South Carolinians here? Okay. You're still part of the union. It's okay. What about Georgia? Where's is Georgia? Georgia. Okay. Now, I think you're going to hear some bad things about South Carolina and Georgia here. When you get to the Constitution, and, and if Gordon Lloyd, when he starts talking tonight in the next couple of days, when he starts talking about the Constitutional Convention... And again, the issue of slavery that comes up in the Constitutional Convention, South Carolina and Georgia, again. And what does Jefferson say about them? He says, South Carolina and Georgia would have had nothing to do with this if we kept that denunciation of slavery in there. Now, this is politics, genuine, difficult politics, where harsh necessities have to be taken into account. Do we want to try to go forward with the revolution with two of our 13 colonies not with us? What that, what's that going to be like? What strategically and militarily, politically, what consequences would it have if Georgia and South Carolina are not with us in this revolution? And South Carolina and Georgia, says Jefferson, wouldn't have anything to do with this denunciation of slavery. He also mentions that there are some Northerners who were a little delicate on the subject. And here's where um, this question of, um, not delicacy, but Cher, what word did you say about? Uh, luxury. Yeah, luxury. Well, maybe this is not exactly that. But the Northerners, too, were involved in the slave trade. And so there was some uh, feeling on the subject up there. But also, in that passage that struck out, this is a, a very uh, good reason for paying attention to that passage. When you ask yourselves, as you or your students rightly ask yourselves, and as practically every um, history of the founding will compel you to ask, how could it be that all men means all human beings, since the very author of the Declaration himself held slaves, and therefore, you might be inclined to think, well, no, it must mean all white men. Or you could go down the list. It, might, it must mean all white males, since women didn't have equal civil, economic, political uh, rights either. And you could go down the list. It must mean all white male Christians, since there were religious tests in some of the states. Or it must mean all white male Protestants, really, because there's some discrimination against different Christians as well. Or it must mean all white male Protestant property owners, since there were some property qualifications for certain civil rights. Well, those are complications that need to be thought through. We probably don't have all the time to think them through here, but they're out on the table in the conversation, and I hope you'll come back to them in the, in the hours and days, and days to come. In that passage uh, that you see uh, struck out, Jefferson says some things that are among the many evidences for recognizing that the passage, all men are created equal, means all human beings. Because Jefferson says, the king, in his piratical warfare uh, against distant peoples uh, who never did any offense to him, the king, in enslaving men, women, and children, was violating the sacred rights of human nature. Um, and you can see in that passage by that phrase and another one that the, that's one bit of evidence that it's perfectly clear that Jefferson meant and Adams and Franklin and all the rest of them there understood him to mean 
all human beings are created equal, even though we are, in fact, uh, holding some of them slaves here ourselves. Uh, that's the dilemma. Uh, that's the moral, political um, uh, dilemma that, um, that is the reality of the case. And trying to figure that out and think through what we're supposed to understand if that's the situation, I think, is the right direction for, for our inquiries. Okay. So all of that just to get us back to, to the Declaration itself where, uh, where Lucas led us and then very quickly to get us from there into, into Locke. The Declaration begins by appealing to the laws of nature and of nature's God. It goes on to assert we hold these truths to be so evident that all men are created equal, an idea you're going to come back to again and again. <clears throat> if you continue reading the most famous passages in the Declaration, you'll hear it saying that all men are created equal, they're endowed with certain unalienable rights, that governments are, that the just powers of government are derived from the consent of the governed, that governments are instituted to secure these unalienable rights with which we are endowed by our creators. And so in that most famous part of the Declaration of Independence, you see condensed, really, the argument that you can find laid out at some length in John Locke's second treatise, largely, appeals to the laws of nature and of nature's God, the assertion of human equality, the argument that because of the laws of nature and of nature's God and because of what human beings are by nature, government must derive or does derive all of its legitimate authority from the consent of the governed, and the argument that governments are established to secure the rights of the governed, all of those arguments about the foundations, um, the purposes, and it's another question, the forms of government are found condensed in those phrases, which is one of the reasons why it's, it's really not a bad thing to read these aloud again and again with your students and have them even memorize it, because in a remarkable distillation here, you have um, essentially the whole argument of Locke's second treatise about what human nature is and why, therefore, government must be founded in a certain way, and why the purposes of government are what they are. Um, there are some other elements in there that we're not paying as much attention to, and I just want you to keep them at least in the back of your mind about how that argument proceeds to say um, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish a government under certain conditions, the right of revolution. You'll see that in Locke as well. Um, and to form new governments... But also, as Jefferson adds, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. Um, somebody brought up the other day, maybe it was after our conversation, comparisons between the French and the American revolutions, and the American and the French revolutions. One of the things you see operating in the French revolution, excuse me, in the American revolution that you don't see in the French is this prudence. That is, the Americans are not saying as the French Revolution did, that every government in the world must, must immediately throw off its monarch or its uh, hereditary aristocrats and start living according to nature. Prudence is necessary and can never be forgotten. It, whatever the truth of these principles may be, it might be that prudence would counsel that Americans not um, start a revolution right now. And somebody was mentioning the other day in, in the connection of uh, the years 1763 to 1776 or even going back uh, many decades before that, 
Americans had a lot of complaints. They had been making these complaints for years about the, uh, the tyranny they claimed they were living under. They didn't always argue from the laws of nature. They didn't always insist on revolution. For most of the period, their complaints were couched in terms of the British Constitution and of their rights as Englishmen. And it was only in these, in these years, really, since Tom Paine's common sense and since the development of, these, uh, of, of the political situation into a greater crisis that they decided and they argued about this. Should we base our claims on uh, natural right or should we base our claims, as we have done for years, on the rights of Englishmen? And they made a conscious decision that it was necessary and proper and prudent now, A, to seek independence, and B, to rest the claim to independence not on traditional right, not on the rights of Englishmen, but on natural right. But the decision to seek independence and not seek some kind of uh, 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 correction within the British Empire, the decision to seek independence and the decision to rest that independence on natural right, both of those were prudential decisions. And it might have been, as it had been for years in America, that they would have decided, you know, it's best that we not seek independence, or it's best that we seek it but not make these claims on, uh, to natural right. But they decided to do both of those things, um, and prudence was what guided them to do that as way in the language they would use. That is one way in which you can see uh, some of the Aristotle, you could say, getting into the thinking of the uh, framers, or excuse me, the revolutionaries, um, and um, complementing the thinking of Locke, which is so, uh, so apparent throughout. So let's turn to Locke. Um, I'm saying that all the arguments roughly in the Declaration are remarkable distillations of these more elaborate and you could say more challenging philosophical arguments made by John Locke in his second treatise, uh, published in 1689. You know, we're reading or reading into this text. We're reading, I see some of you have it on, on the desk already. We're reading or reading into the Federalist Papers. We're reading or reading into James Madison's notes from the Constitutional Convention. These are larger texts. We're not going to be able to exhaust them. We're not meaning to exhaust them. But if we succeed, all of you will become better readers of these texts on your own by yourself uh, because of the introductions that we're able to, uh, to get done in an hour or so uh, here. Locke's second treatise. Locke never published this under his name in his, in his, in his lifetime. Um, it was uh, written in the context of the glorious revolution in England which had been consummated by 1689. It was a philosophical justification of the glorious revolution, and it was a philosophical justification that was um, ahead of the times. That is, it wasn't as if everyone in England understood the glorious revolution to mean exactly what John Locke is saying it means here. But his radical uh, justification of the glorious revolution in England in 1689 becomes one of the um, most influential uh, sets of ideas that inform the American mind a little less than a century later um, in our revolution. 
I want to skip over the preface, although there are many uh, useful things in there, and look right at um, the first chapter on page 7. And if you ever want to give yourselves, or if some of you are in a, in a class, an AP class or something, where you actually use Locke, is there anybody here who actually does that in a class uh, in, in your levels? Yeah. Is it AP history? or? Oh, yeah. Good. Well, in, in college, when I, when I teach Locke with my students, I mean, they, uh, who are typically average students, they have a difficult time reading Locke, just as uh, we often do, or reading the Federalist Papers, for that matter. Um, and one of the things you can do is read the first sentence of the second treatise, which is the whole of chapter one. So it takes most of this page here. And, and ask yourselves or your students to find the three words in that, in that long, long passage that make it a sentence. Um, we're not going to do that in here because it takes up too much time. But you can see right from the beginning of it um, something about the context of the second treatise. He starts off, it having been shown in the foregoing discourse that blah, 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 blah. So what do we know just by the title of the second treatise? Okay. Okay. There was a first treatise. And in that first treatise, as Locke tells us in the first sentence and as Locke tells us in his preface, in Locke's first treatise of government, he thinks, as he tells us in this first sentence, that he has successfully refuted the arguments of a certain person. Who? Anybody remember? Whose arguments did John Locke refute in his first treatise of government? wasn't Hobbes. Filmer. Sir Robert Filmer. Sir Robert Filmer, as Locke tells us, is dead. Why is Locke taking the time, as he did in the first treatise, to refute the arguments of Sir Robert Filmer? Locke says in his preface, I have to do this because Sir Robert's ideas are the fashionable ideas of our time. In fact, they're being preached from the pulpits of the Church of England. And what, in a nutshell, um, are the arguments of Sir Robert Filmer that John Locke says that he has refuted? What, in a few words, uh, uh, um, is the sort of traditional phrase for articulating the position of Sir Robert Filmer that Locke says he has refuted in his first treatise? Anybody? All right, just, we can just leave it at that. The divine right of kings. Locke says, I have proven that the divine right of kings is a false claim to political authority. That's what he says in his first sentence of the second treatise. He says, in the first treatise, I have succeeded in devastating the argument for the divine right of kings. And because I have succeeded in doing that, Locke says, I am obliged to point out Another original, he calls it another original. We would call it another foundation, another ground of political authority. I'm John Locke. I have succeeded in my first treatise in destroying the prevailing understanding of political authority in the world that we live in, the divine right of kings. Because I have done that, I am obliged to offer a true authority, an alternative authority. And the whole second treatise is John Locke's effort to supply what he calls at the end of the 
in this long first passage, right before section 2, he must of necessity find out another rise of government, another original of political power than what Sir Robert Filmer has taught us. So you want to understand what the whole second treatise is about. It is about finding out another rise of government, another original of political power, again, with your students or in your own mind, to get through his language, understand that he means, I have to find out another foundation for legitimate political authority than what was offered by the argument for the divine right of kings. And that's what I'm going to do in the second treatise, and he begins to do it then. I would appreciate an interjection. Notice if he doesn't do that, what does he claim on that very page will be the only ground for rule for government? What would be its only basis? What are you left with if you don't find some other legitimate rationale for government? State of nature. State of nature which produces what according to? Law of the jungle, which is? Force. 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 Yeah. Right? That, that's what you're left with. Right. I mean, this is how how serious the subject matter is. And, and to Locke's credit, he states it at the outset. Yeah. I'm not being flippant here about, hey, maybe we should rule ourselves this way, that way. If I've refuted the prevailing mode, which is the divine right of kings, I had better supply the defect, or supply the deficiency. I'd better come up with some justification for government. Otherwise, all we're left with is essentially Hobbes, right? So that we don't give just occasion to think that all government in the world is the product only of force and violence, and that men live together by no other rules but that of beasts, where the strongest carries it. And, if this were the case, what would happen? He thinks that if we learn that might makes right, would that actually produce order and peace, the rule of the strong? No, he says, actually, that would produce a foundation for perpetual disorder and mischief, tumult, sedition, and rebellion. So he goes even further. It doesn't just say, then we would just be ruled by the mighty. He actually thinks, you know what, that would create not a situation of a bunch of despotisms where at least we'll be at peace and, and we'll at least have security for our property. We won't have rights, but at least we'll be at peace with one another. He goes, no. Then everybody, you know, every other year someone goes, huh, I could knock that guy off. Which is where in our classes we inject a rock where they can see that game being played out in real time. Yeah. How do you create a country where only force prevails? That's true. Uh, thanks, Lucas. And, but it's also true what, what, what Lucas is pointing out is that there are those, and, and you can call to mind immediately Machiavelli, for example. There are those who say, look, you want, we want to understand the truth of things. We understand the realities of human political life. And Machiavelli says, get real, take off your blinders. The way things are, you know the way things are. The way things are is this way. The strong do what they will, and the weak do what they must. Get used to it. And, Locke's, and, and Machiavelli says, that's the world we live in, and you will find a lot of your students who will say, look, what's politics? It's about power. You know, the strong do what we know that. You know, you've got to be strong. You know, he who's got the... What, he who's got the gold makes the rules, that kind of thing, the golden rule. And Locke is saying, no, that's not the way it is in reality. He's saying, if you accept the notion that what it means to be a human being is to live in a world in which the strong do what they will and the weak do what they must, that world will unavoidably and in the necessary logic of that view of things turn into a world where it is 
how did you say it? Perpetual disorder and mischief, tumult, sedition, and rebellion. A world that Hobbes would say, you know, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And Locke says, I am not willing to leave it at that. And what that means is, that's not the reality in his argument. There's a more fundamental reality. And that is that human beings, in fact, in, in, in reality, do recognize if they see reality for what it is, that there's a right and a wrong, and we need to govern ourselves according to that and discover what it is. Machiavelli says, what childish innocence? What naivete? But Locke doesn't say that, and the American revolutionaries don't say that. And therefore, and only therefore, and this is why this, this first sentence does pack a lot into it, it's worth reading and rereading once you can figure out how to read it. But it does say right at the outset all of these things, and it gives the reasons why Locke has to write the second treatise. Because he is morally obligated not to leave it at that. Not to leave it at perpetual disorder, tumult, and sedition, which it will be left at if you accept the notion that it's just might makes right. Machiavelli also argues that the prince, in order to protect his power, will provide good government because people who are happy and prosperous will not be in rebellion and arrested. That's right. And, and Machiavelli would say at the same time, in any of those happy and prosperous people who happen to get a notion that they might be more powerful than the prince, they'll take it away from them like that, and they ought to, because it's rule of the strongest, yeah. or the cleverest, the lion and the fox, not Locke. Okay, so this turns Locke to his argument, and that's what we want to spend the rest of our, our time on this morning, Locke's argument. We're going to rip through ideas like this, as you're familiar with. Uh, the state of nature, which somebody has just mentioned. The law of nature. Equality again. Freedom again. Um, civil society. Property. Um, a few key ideas like that. Uh, consent of the governed. Majority rule. Right of revolution. If we succeed in the next uh, 30, 40 minutes, we're going to cover all those things and exhaust the subject completely and you can never have to read Locke again. No, that's not true. So to do that, we have to skip around and look at, at, at passages where, in my judgment, these famous ideas are famously found and you can at least say to yourself, I have looked at them, I have seen Locke, I have read into Locke, even though I may not have studied the text uh, exhaustively. So, let's start with the state of nature. Why is Locke writing this treatise? He has to find out another original of, of good government. That is to say, he has to find out what are the true foundations of legitimate political power. He has to find out how it is that one human being may rightfully rule over another. That's his whole inquiry. To do this, he says immediately in section number four, in his own language, on page, uh, your page eight, and maybe somebody can, uh, can read here just to get us away through. Anybody, any volunteers to read from section four to understand? Sherilyn from Wyoming. Thank you. To understand political power right and to derive it from its original, we must consider what state all men are naturally in, and that is a state of perfect freedom to order their actions and dispose of their possessions and persons as they think fit within the bounds of the law of nature without asking leave or depending upon the will of any other man. Good. And can you just continue into the next because it's so connected? 
state also of equality wherein all the power and jurisdiction is reciprocal, no one having more than another, there being nothing more evident than that creatures of the same species and rank, promiscuously born to all the same advantages of nature and the use of the same faculties, should also be equal one amongst another without subordination or subjection unless the Lord and Master of them all should, by any manifest declaration of his will, set one above another and confer on him by an evident and clear appointment an undoubted right to dominion and sovereignty. Okay, thank you. So there you see he's looking at this question. What state are all men naturally in? He says, if I want to find out the true original of political power, if I want to understand political power right and derive it from its true foundation, I have to consider what state all men are naturally in. And this is where he memorably says, that's a state of perfect freedom and equality. And he explains equality a little bit and notice the language, nothing is more evident. There's nothing more evident than this equality. And he gives us some notions about what it means as well, even in terms that you'd recognize from Jefferson. He said, because you know, it's, nothing is more evident than, than this equality, unless or until somebody you know, happens to come in and put a, you know, some, God comes down and puts a crown on your head and makes you, you know, king of Philadelphia and, and, and puts shovels in everybody else's hands by nature. But we look around and we don't see that. You look around and you see human beings. It's just us. And nobody is, by nature, apparently, designated to be the ruler of the rest of us. The state we are naturally in is a state of perfect freedom and equality in this respect. And I want to look uh, uh, at a couple of, uh, several other passages that elaborate then what Locke will call this state of nature, the state all men are naturally in. What he means by that state of nature and what these... Um, elements of the state of nature, equality and freedom mean. So the state all men are naturally in, you've seen it for yourselves, according to Locke, is a state of perfect freedom and equality. Now he knows he's got a, some explaining to do here, as Lucy used to say. He's got some explaining to do. Um, right away in section 6 on page 9, he starts um, uh, qualifying and explaining what he means by freedom. There he calls it liberty. Though this is a state of liberty, it is not a state of license. And can we get another reader to sort of read these things aloud? Share from Nevada. It's not a state of license. But though this be a state of liberty, yet it is not a state of license. Though man in that state have an uncontrollable liberty to dispose of his person or possessions, yet he has not liberty to destroy himself or so much as any creature in his possession but where some nobler use than its bare preservation calls for it. The state of nature has a law of nature to govern it, which obliges everyone, and reason, which is that law, teaches all mankind who will but consult it, that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. Okay, let's, let's pause right there. The rest of that paragraph is, is an expansion of what he means by that, but there... These are ideas that you will find familiar if you're uh, reading the Declaration of Independence. He's talking about the law of nature. Uh, he's talking about freedom and equality. And so for our purposes here, we now have 
this state of nature, the state all men are naturally in. We know that it's a state of perfect freedom and equality, according to Locke. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that it's a state of license. Freedom or liberty doesn't mean license. What does that mean? It means that, that there's a law that um, governs our freedom. He calls it the law of nature. The state of nature has a law of nature to govern. He begins to tell us a few things about that law. It obliges everyone. Start with that. All human beings are obliged to obey the law of nature. It is reason. Reason is the law of nature. He tells us that. And he then begins to tell us substantively what the law is. Reason teaches us all that mankind, if they consult reason, because we're equal and independent, ought not to harm one another in our lives, health, liberty, and possessions. Okay? So there's some beginning of an elaboration of what this law of nature is, how it is related to human freedom, the fact that it obliges all human beings, and that you can say the law of nature is reason. Human beings have this thing called reason. Reason instructs us in the law of nature. And I want to look at some other passages to show you where Locke develops further these connections between the law of nature, the state of nature, freedom, equality, um, reason. Um, and let's, let's glance around and look at some of those. For the state of nature, you might glance at these few uh, sections of Locke, which I'll mention to you. Section 4 we've just looked at, section 19, section 13, section 127. We may not get to all of those in our conversation, but you will find that if you go to those sections, you will find a couple things like this. <clears throat> well, let's, let's, let's go to some of them. Flip to section 19. Yeah, sections, and you've got all these sections marked there, so it's very helpful. Sections 4, we just looked at, 19, 13, and 127. Section 19 is useful because it gives you another articulation of what the state of nature is, and it's slightly different from just saying it's a state of perfect freedom and equality. He says in section 19... Um, that the state of nature is not a state of war. Well, and there he differs from Thomas Hobbes. The state of nature is not a state of war. It's really a state of peace. And then he says, men living together according to reason without a common superior on earth with authority to judge between them is properly the state of nature. So, to try to think through for yourselves exactly what this notion, this idea of the state of nature is, this concept. You can imagine human beings um, living without any common superior on earth with authority to judge between them. The state of nature is a condition in which we're living in which there is no recognized authority to arbitrate disputes among us should they arise. But Locke says... Strictly speaking, the state of nature is um, a condition in which we are living without any common authority, but uh, we are not at war. Because a state of war, as he tells us at the end of section 19, uh, again, contrasting it with a state of nature, let me read the whole thing, at the end of section 19, want of a common judge with authority puts all men in a state of nature. Force without right upon a man's person makes a state of war. 
So the state of nature, strictly speaking, is a condition in which we are living peacefully according to reason without any authority over us, a state of perfect freedom and equality, but not at war with one another. Now, so there Locke differs again from Thomas Hobbes, who will essentially say that a state of nature is a state of war. So how does... So Locke raises the question later on, and uh, is this where section 127 comes in? Look to that. No, look at uh, another section for a moment, if I can find it. Um, Well, we'll get to it in uh, a minute, wherever it is. Anyway, if the state of nature is a state of um, uh, peace, human beings living together according to reason, why don't human beings just remain in the state of nature? And there, looking at section 13 and looking back to section 127, you'll begin to see some reasons. I'll leave you to read section uh, 13. Um, I think I am thinking 123 right now. You're right. Um, why would anyone want to leave the state of nature? Yeah, thank you. Um, right, section 123 and 124, let's look at those for the moment. If this state of nature is what Locke is saying it is, if man in a state of nature, section 123, be so free, any volunteer readers for this? Because I'd like to hear the, the whole, whole words of it and not, not waste my, my throat on it. Robin, can, you, can I volunteer you? Section 123, if man... Locke is telling us here something you want to keep in mind for uh, certainly the rest of our conversation here. He's telling us something about human nature in addition to what he's already told us. If human beings are left completely free and equal, if they are left with no superior power on earth to govern them, says Locke, and this he would not disagree with Aristotle, um, their lives will... Uh, become bad. Um, the state of nature where everybody is perfectly free and equal, though in principle or by the law of nature, you could say in that state everyone has a right to his own person and his own property, the enjoyment of this right is very uncertain. Why? Why, if we are left completely free and equal, if we don't have government over us, why, according to Locke, does our situation become full of fears and continual dangers. 
Yes, and, and they will commit crimes because he, he ref, this is a reflection on, on human beings here. Because the greater part of mankind are no strict observers of equity and justice. Now, that's kind of insulting, isn't it? I feel safe among you all. Yeah, and, uh, Hobbes right? Pardon me? Doesn't that make Hobbes right? Dennis Perot. No, because Thomas Hobbes would say the state of nature is the state of war. And Locke is trying to make a distinction between um, a state of nature in principle where we are free and equal and until one of us... He says the state of nature will quickly become a state of war. He says you can expect wherever human beings are left free and equal without a common superior to judge them, you can expect them to find themselves eventually in a state of war. Why? Because human beings are no strict observers of equity and justice. Or, but but he, he is insisting on this distinction between a state of nature and a state of war because he, unlike Machiavelli, or for that matter Hobbes, he does not want to make the argument, you could say, that might makes right. Yes, uh, Heather from Minnesota. World, you, could usually, you could easily use this in time world choices that kids make. And in the classroom, you know, how you could have perfect harmony and respect to those differences and personal property, but when the teacher turns their head or when the acting government leaves the room, and you have that one person that makes that choice, now you have the difference between Hobbes and Locke. This is a good point. You could say, yeah, I mean, this is, I, I hate to say this, but it's true. Your classrooms. You step outside the door of your classrooms, and what do you leave behind you? A state of nature, according to Hobbes. And you can tell those students, look, I'm going out the door, though, but I want you to know, if you don't keep obeying the law of nature, it's going to get solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short in here real quick for you. Yeah, it does get that way. But Locke does want to insist on this distinction, at least conceptually. And you're right that eventually th there's, we don't have the time to go into this there. You could say a half a dozen major conflicting interpretations of John Locke. And one major and very persuasive one is if you read John Locke down to his core and understand what his argument boils down to, it's Hobbes. He makes some nice gestures towards decency, but it's Hobbes. But um, Locke doesn't say that. Locke talks about the justly decried Hobbes. He does not want to present his argument as a Hobbesian argument. Read as one of the documents in your um, packet, maybe for the second session, um, Alexander Hamilton's The Farmer Refuted. This is Hamilton. This is a 20-year-old kid about that time. So read, think of that and go, this is a pretty bright guy. In that, in that wonderful um, uh, published letter or argument, Hamilton explicitly distinguishes the principles of the American Revolution and the principles of Thomas Hobbes. And he gives, a, just he really distills the reason for doing that. You know, that Thomas Hobbes is teaching that there is no right and wrong, except if somebody makes laws against it. To put it in different terms, if you follow Thomas Hobbes' teaching, Hobbes tells you murder is wrong only if you make a law against it. And I'm here to say the American Revolution, Hamilton says, the American Revolution stands on the principle that you make laws against murder because it's wrong. There is a natural law. There is a right and wrong independent of and obliging of all human laws. And we want to get to that argument in, in Locke as well. Is there there's another hand up? Yeah, Sharon? Sure. Doesn't Locke say that human beings are born good contrasted with Hobbes, who says that human beings are born evil. 
Well, if that's the case, how can he justify the fact that they're going to resort to chaos and brutishness, etc., if they're born good? Okay, let us keep that question in mind throughout our conversations. When we get to the Federalist Papers, you will see these two things. You, you see it in, in the arguments that we're trying to work through right now. All the arguments we're talking about here ultimately have something to do with what are these things, these human beings um, that, uh, that we're talking about who govern themselves. And there are at least two things you, you can say about them in these arguments. On the one hand, as, as uh, Madison will say, these Americans, this American revolutionaries, and you can see this in, in uh, contemporary arguments today about Iraq, for that matter. Madison says in Federalist 39, I think it is, we are determined to rest all of our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government. Now, what does that mean? Men are good. Now, it doesn't simply mean as Locke will, or Madison will say in, in Federalist 51, it doesn't mean men are angels. But it means that human beings, we, this revolution and Locke's argument must be understood to be saying at least this, there is something in human beings that equip them, equips them to govern themselves. Yes. On the other hand, there is something in human beings that requires that they be governed those two poles in mind in understanding what human beings are according to Locke, according to the American Revolution, according to the founders, uh, and according to the framing of our Constitution. What does our Constitution do when we get to that? It gives power to government, and it does everything it can to keep government from abusing that power. Why would you have to do that? Well, because human beings, on the one hand, are equipped to govern themselves, deserve to govern themselves, are, you know, by nature should be governing themselves, and on the other hand, human beings are not angels, and they need governments. So, it is the, the qualities in mankind that deserve a certain portion of esteem and confidence, as Madison says, that justify self-government. If human beings, each one of us individually, is not in some way capable of governing himself, we could never say that self-government is, or government by the people, is a sensible thing to propose. But if human beings were angels, there wouldn't be any necessity to establish any government. So those, both of those things are involved in Locke's, in Locke's argument, in the revolutionary's argument. Okay, so there's a state of nature, there's this law of nature to govern it, but ah, the greater part of human beings are no strict observers of this law of nature. And Locke says in section 128, um, if you just read through that on your own, he says, if human beings were strict observers of equity and justice, all we would need was it would be the law of nature. Were it not for the corruption and viciousness of degenerate men, there would be no need of any other law but the law of nature. The corruption and viciousness of degenerate men. Notice all of those words and how they talk about a falling off, you could say. So this is a claim that, um, that somehow human beings until and unless they uh, become corrupt, degenerate, um, will need no other law but the law of nature. But what is Locke saying? Well, you leave human beings alone and free and equal without any government over them, and you can expect that things will degenerate. So human beings, it is our weaknesses, 
it is, it, it is human capacities that justify self-government, and it's our human weaknesses that require government at all as part of Locke's argument. Some other sections on, on the connection between now freedom, reason, and law, especially the law of nature. You can look at, um, you've seen sections four and section six. Consider sections 57 and 61 and 63 to show you, I think, part of, of Locke's logic, the logic of his argument that is very much the logic of the American uh, Revolution. Section 57, Locke talks about the law of reason, and he expresses um, a, uh, some connections, a logical connection between law, reason, and freedom, uh, which I think are worth com uh, uh, commenting on briefly. Law, he says in the middle of uh, Section 57, law in its true notion is not so much the limitation as the direction of a free and intelligent agent to his proper interest. This is section 57 in the middle. If you understand what law is, it's not, it's not a, a limit on your freedom. It's really a direction to your, of your freedom to its proper purpose. And law, he equates with, with reason here. The end of law, in other words, the purpose of law, is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. And he goes on to say in italics, where there is no law, there is no freedom. So um, the state of nature has a law of nature to govern it. That law obliges all men. But as we all know, um, we, we human beings, we sinners, we don't always do what's right, even when we know what's right. We sometimes do what's wrong. But to the extent that we do um, act reasonably, to the extent that we do conform to what is truly right, uh, our freedom is enhanced and enlarged. It is precisely when we stray from what reason uh, ought to be informing us to do that we begin to circumscribe uh, and, and limit our freedom. If you look at sections 61 and 63 on the following page, again, just some uh, brief articulations of the relationship between reason, freedom, and law that are just worth remembering to get your introductory sense of, of Locke's reasoning and the reasoning of the American revolutionaries. Nice line to begin section 61. Thus we are born free as we are born rational. And... Locke explains in this passage, he, he understands that babies, a little baby, he understands that you, a baby doesn't start off life reasoning. He understands, and therefore he shows us in this section on paternal power, it is the obligation of parents to raise their children in such a way that they will grow up to be able to reason. In particular, to reason about what is right and wrong. The way Locke puts it is, in section 63, the freedom of men... <coughs> And the liberty of acting according to his own will is grounded on his having reason, which is able to instruct him in that law he is to govern himself by. And Locke would say, parents, it is the natural obligation of parents to raise their children in such a way 
that their children will develop the capacity to recognize for themselves the law they ought to govern themselves by. And when they do that, that's when they are, are and ought to be independent human beings. Of course he recognizes that children are not free the way grown-up human beings are free. Their parents, the first obligation of parenthood is to raise children in such a way that they become able to reason for themselves. That is to say, they become human beings. And that reasoning, the way Locke defines it right here, is learning how to instruct yourself in the laws you should be governed by. And here he's talking about, in particular, the law of nature. Jefferson, in his summary view of the rights of British America, would say this in simple terms, which I think are important to keep in mind here. This law of nature is a term taken from antiquity and from medieval thinking and a whole tradition of thinking of natural law, and therefore it sometimes places obstacles in the way of thinking things through. In Jefferson's summary view, he says, I'm talking about the great principles of right and wrong that are clear to everybody if somebody hasn't been miseducated. That's what the law of nature is. What's right, what's wrong? Not because it's a law here, but intrinsically. And Locke says it's the obligation of every parent to raise children so that they grow up to what? To know what's right and wrong. And when they when you get that sense, then they are capable of governing themselves. That's what makes them capable of establishing self-government. On the law of nature itself and, and different aspects of it, you can look at sections, we've seen section 6, sections 12, um, we've looked at 57, uh, 61, and 63, and section uh, 135 for just a little further elaborations on the, uh, the law of nature. There are problems here, and we've recognized them, they've been pointed out, uh, in that um, on the one hand Locke is saying there is such a thing as the law of nature. Um, and again, putting in, in Jefferson's terms, um, or look at um, Hamilton again with his uh, farmer's uh, letter, the farmer refuted. Um, some things are right and wrong in themselves, intrinsically, whether human beings happen to have made a law about them or not. That's, that's all the law of nature means. And, and the, everyone is obliged to obey the law of nature. Why? Everyone's obliged to obey the law of nature because human beings are equipped to understand it. That is to say, we have reason. And if we haven't been, you know, suffered child abuse all our lives or not been educated properly or been, you know, brought up to be, uh, you know, uh, young fascists and Hitler youth, we will uh, recognize what is right and wrong when we see it. And um, Donna from Oklahoma. So is his idea of reason your conscience? You could call it conscience. He doesn't use that term here, and that, that term really is a term that's developed. But there are specific... Um, um, associations with the word conscience that develops out of Christian uh, tradition, theology and philosophy and moral, moral philosophy over centuries. And Locke is not uh, referring to that here. He is saying something more, much more like what Aristotle says, I, I think. And that is this. Aristotle says people are not by nature virtuous. They are born, they're equipped by nature to become virtuous and they become virtuous by habit. And Locke is saying, look, human beings are not, when they're infants, they're not born uh, uh, knowing what's right and wrong. But they are born equipped by nature to learn the difference between right and wrong. And if they are properly brought up, they will learn it. And that is why they can be held responsible for 
their actions. And think of that, think of just how we ordinarily treat things under the law and in, in, in customary practice. Un, under the law, for example, there's a thing called the age of reason, the age of consent. What does that mean? It means, well, there, we, you can't say an age. Some people grow up more quickly than others. But there's such a thing as a child. And a child can't be held responsible for its actions the way a grown-up can. In principle, what does that mean? We recognize that reason doesn't come to us at birth. But we also recognize that it should be expected to come to us at a certain point. Name it, the age of 18 or 16 or 14 in Georgia. <laughs> People get smart in Georgia real quick. I'm telling you. I don't know. There was another uh, hand up or no? Okay. Um, these sections on the, on the law of nature, looking at section 12, one of the interesting things this says about the law of nature uh, is along the lines that I'm just trying to uh, loviate about up here. Um, he says in the middle of section 12 um, about this law of nature, he says, it is certain there is such a law. And that law is as intelligible and plain to a rational creature and a studier of that law as the positive laws of commonwealths. Nay, possibly plainer. So, read all of that. This, this gets back to this notion of self-evidence as well that we talked through yesterday and I think Lincoln made the idea of self-evidence as self-evident as it can be made uh, in a brief time. The law of nature, it's certain there is such a law. And that law is as intelligible and plain to a rational creature and a studier of that law as the positive laws of commonwealths. Nay, possibly plain. So, this is to say again, if you look at Jefferson's summary view, look, there's such a thing as right and wrong. There are, there are the simple principles of right and wrong. And you should hold, human beings may be held accountable for knowing the difference between right and wrong. Why? Because we're equipped to understand the difference by nature. Now, we know that some people are brought up poorly, and they therefore become axe murderers and, you know, serial thieves. Well, bad luck. We know that other people become drunks or, or get carried away by their passions, and all of these things we can take into account. But Locke, like Aristotle, Jefferson, like Aristotle, would say that we can't even begin understanding human beings and political beings unless we understand that they are equipped by nature. If they're not miseducated or in some other ways abused, they're equipped to recognize the distinction between right and wrong. And all of our laws and all political society depends upon that view of what human beings are. John. Um, John from Temecula. Yeah. All right. Oh, um, sorry. I'm thinking about uh, the backs of the American mind. Okay, so we embrace this Lockean concept, but isn't it shaped in part by our experience? Um, go back to the sort of the colonial experience that man put in there, in a sense, in a base nature that removed from all government, so to speak, um, that utopian society, um, that it played out in positive terms, that it wasn't hobby and puffs, in that man was degenerated in a state of war, put the colonies here, when they had a chance for stock government, when they did it, 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 it turned towards that blocks concept of self-evident, obvious, law-abiding, good people. 
isn't it shaping the way that Jefferson and others think the experience of America as a whole by this point? Yeah, and I, I, I'm not sure if I understand your whole point, but certainly, and this is a thing we just don't have time to do here. You could, you could have a whole other two weeks on this. The American political experience for you know, 150 years before 1776 is a powerful informer of, of what happens in 1776. I've been referring to the ideas, mainly, that have shaped the Americans, and it's, it's certainly important. They, they recognize that their own experience in self-government, among other things, has equipped them to govern themselves. And it turns out that uh, a lot of experience and trial and error in governing yourselves can be a, make a great difference. Whatever your ideas are, if your people don't have some, um, again, experience in doing this, uh, it's going to be a very hard thing to carry it out. Well, it, it, what popped in my head was here you know, sit between the Titans and the Freedom River, this struggle of their experience over thousands of years. We don't yeah. embrace a lot yeah, of when I say these things, we, you know, we, we can't uh, uh, conduct a, a seminar on, uh, on uh, the prospects for democracy in the Middle East here. But it is, it is a relevant thing that in your informal conversations and your own thinking that it certainly should be called to mind if you're reading the newspapers and so on. The President of the United States in the last uh, couple of years has quite remarkably made very familiar arguments about the capacity of mankind for self-government. The President of the United States has said, we think that human beings are capable of governing themselves, and you folks who think that those Iraqis are not as good as you and are not capable of governing themselves, well, we think that you're, you're not giving them enough credit. And other folks say, well, I'm not sure you're understanding that exactly right. Um, you know, we Americans uh, had 150 years of trial and error and experience in governing ourselves. We had lots of other traditions that maybe were conducive to self-government. We ourselves, we remember this revolution we're talking about starting in 1776. It takes a number of years to win that revolutionary war. That's one thing. And the next thing is, we established a frame of government that is really, that failed miserably. And it takes us many more years to come up to our Constitution, which we're going to talk about here in the next couple of days. And so that is a very relevant conversation, which we don't have the liberty to do justice to in here. But the question that uh, we can certainly consider is, what does it mean to say that human beings have the capacity to govern themselves by nature? Does it mean that every people in every place, every particular people with their particular customs in every place, are equally equipped to govern themselves at that moment? No, it doesn't mean to say that. Because it means to say that, you know, it's possible that you're brought up in Nazi Germany in the 1920s or 30s, or militaristic Japan in the 1920s or 30s, and your people is going to be deeply steeped in habits that are not conducive to self-government. That doesn't mean that they're not human beings, and it doesn't mean that if they hadn't been miseducated, they wouldn't be better equipped to govern themselves. It does mean that establishing a democracy there right now might be a little more difficult than it was, and it was very difficult then, to do it in America in 1776. There was a hand up in the back. Yeah, there. I, was I was just going to say, where, where would the deist philosophy come in here, the mechanical mind... Uh, that Descartes talks about, uh, you know, where God isn't providential, uh, that mankind's going to have to do a lot of these things by themselves by figuring out how the world operates, uh, type of philosophies. And 
Um, doesn't that play a lot, uh, especially with Franklin? I know Franklin, uh, you know, read truth <coughs> with Herbert quite a bit. And yeah. Well, you notice that the Declaration of Independence starts, as we learned, with an appeal to the laws of nature and of nature's God. The laws of nature. The laws of God. It doesn't say, uh, you know, the laws of nature and the, uh, the daily uh, uh, micromanagement of God. So there's that sense in which we're talking about a world in which, as Locke will say, if you follow those sections which I think I mentioned to you, he calls the law of nature reason, and he calls the law of nature the will of God. He doesn't say it's the will of God as all Christians recognize it to be, but he calls it the will of God. He does talk like that. Uh, Franklin and, and others, or Jefferson, could certainly talk in the same language. You will notice in, in the American political discourse, by and large, in the public documents of America, in the revolution and the founding, that God is referred to as the great law. In the Declaration of Independence itself, you find God referred to as the great executive, the great lawgiver, supreme judge. It's like he's a separation of powers all unto himself. And uh, But you don't uh, see appeals to uh, Jesus who died on the cross for us, and so on. You find these appeals to a God that American political discourse uh, was perfectly at home with, which was non-sectarian, as, as Lucas pointed out, and which some could take to be in their philosophizing over beers in the city tavern, you know, a deist notion of mechanical God, a watchmaker, and others could think of, I mean, notice in the Declaration itself, you do talk about providence. Congress stuck that in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jefferson didn't put that in there. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's never bad to have providence on your side, I think. Um, we have about two minutes on, on this uh, exhaustive, uh, close scrutinizing exegesis of the second treatise here. Um, let me just mention a couple of other themes and um, uh, sections that you can follow out. Property is um, uh, a great Lockean theme, a great American theme. If you glance at sections 27, 123, 124 and read them, you can puzzle yourself about what, what it is Locke means by this famous thing, property. Locke does say in sections 123 and 124 that civil society, that the, the chief end of government is the preservation of property. Understand that. And he says in those same passages, what property means is life, liberty, and estate. Doesn't mean just property as we ordinarily think of it. Um, to look at where Locke talks about consent of the governed as the only foundation of legitimate authority, you can look at Locke's preface, the first several lines of the preface, he refers to consent of the governed as the only foundation of legitimate power. And if you look at sections 95 and 96, you'll see him elaborating on that. And you'll see him in in those sections 95 and 96 explaining why it is that consent of the governed by nature must manifest itself as majority rule. Majority rule by the laws of reason and of nature is um, is the way that consent of the governed must manifest itself um, in politics. Uh, last little note uh, uh, to officially leave Locke here. The right of revolution, which you see asserted in the Declaration of Independence, you can look at sections 220 and following, um, 220 right through 228 and beyond, where Locke 
articulates this right of revolution and explains that, um, and this is also relevant to our contemporary politics, to the uh, prevention or preemptive war. Locke says, you have a right to overthrow a tyrant. And he says, if you have a right to overthrow a tyrant, that must mean that you have a right to prevent a tyrant from establishing his tyranny over you, to preempt it from happening. You have a right of revolution, and you even have a right to preempt tyranny. So I think our time is up for this session, and uh, Lucas will carry on. It's all about the same arguments. And, um,